want to get out your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 2 tonight. I've been enjoying the study in the Psalms. Last time we looked at Psalm 1, and this time we're going to continue uh, with Psalm 2. We're not going to just go through all the Psalms. Obviously, I'm not going to be here that long. So, uh, But we are going to be looking at some major Psalms. And these two Psalms are really setting up the whole Psalter. These are the two introductory Psalms, as I talked about in the overview. So um, this second Psalm complements the first Psalm in providing us with another main theme that we see throughout the book of the Psalms. Uh, so what we're going to see tonight as we, as we study together is this picture of kingship. And I think as Americans in 2019, uh, we kind of struggle, we're, we're, we're at a significant disadvantage uh, as far as understanding what it is like to be under uh, the reign of a king and what, what that really feels like. I mean, Britain's kind of got a monarchy, but not really. I mean, the queen doesn't really do that much anymore. Uh, there's there's a few kings out there that are we call the dictators who just really we see them oppressing their people and stuff, but there's not a whole lot of pictures of kingship and we're not really familiar with the kingships that are out there because we're just kind of isolated with our our government and everything that's been set up for us. So uh, one thing that we notice as we look throughout Scriptures is that the kingship and the kingdom idea is supposed to be understood by the people of God, that they're supposed to have a grasp of this con- concept of being under a king and being in a kingdom. But we struggle with that, right? Because we've not dealt with what it means to be under a king on a daily, monthly, yearly basis. We don't know what it's like to hear the decree of the king uh, where one man essentially decides and dictates to to that extent and has that much power. And we don't really know what it's like to be besieged and have to rely on the king to, to make the right decision. I mean, there's just a number of things that we don't really connect with as we study throughout the scriptures, but one thing that we notice as we get to Psalm two is that the kingship and kingdom picture is a very, very important picture for us uh, and for all of God's people, uh, as far as how God interacts with His people. God is king, uh, God is ruler over everything, but He also has one who He has set up on the earth, who is the ruler, and this is the way it's pictured for us. Let's let's read this Psalm, Psalm two, uh, and we'll read all twelve verses. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations Your heritage and the ends of the earth Your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So in this psalm, we see a picture of of kingship and we see a picture of a relationship between God and His anointed and and a picture of the kingdom being set up and and established in such a way that no one can conquer. And that's essentially the picture that we get from this psalm. And it's going to help us to understand something very important whenever we get to the New Testament tonight. So as we study this psalm together, we're going to try to understand what does it look like to be in the kingdom of God? What does it look like to be a citizen of that kingdom and have a king over us and have God over him and what does all of that what is all that supposed to mean to the Christian today and try to try to get to that understanding okay so first of all let's try to understand what this psalm is all about notice in the first 3 verses that there's this foolish plot that is created, right? Uh, The nations are raging against the Lord and against His anointed. Uh, This is a picture of, of nations around Israel coming up against the anointed one who is the king of Israel. Anytime you see that word, the anointed one, typically it's referring to the king of Israel. That's a, a common way that they would talk about it. Uh, as, as he is the one that God has anointed for the task of being king of Israel. Now there are other people who are called anointed throughout Scripture, but uh, typically that's what this is referring to. That this is the one man who, who, is on, who is with God and who God is using to direct and to guide his people. He's, he's mediating between him and his people. And, and so another way that we word that, anointed, uh, is Messiah. Uh, that, that word anointed is the same word, Messiah, that we read in the New Testament. Anytime you see a Messiah in the New Testament, you're reading anointed. Uh, so this is a very easy text for us to look at and say, well, obviously this is a messianic psalm. It's talking about the Messiah. That's what this is all referring to as it's pointing to that. So we could directly go to Jesus and, and see how Jesus fits into this. But before we dive into that, Let's understand what it means in the context of this psalm as it was originally written and then try to make the application to Jesus, okay? So they've got this foolish plot, this foolish plan that they're devising against the king of Israel. And the picture is that they're meditating. That word plot is the same word that was used in Psalm 1 that was meditating and and trying to take counsel together. Same idea as Psalm 1. There's, There's wicked meditation. There's wicked counsel, trying to find a way to, to, to overrun the anointed. Well, why, why do they want to do that? Why do they want to come up against the Lord? And why do they want to come up against His anointed? Well, uh, they don't want to submit to His authority. Essentially, that's what it's all about. There's a desire to break free from the chains. Notice how it's put there in verse 3. Um, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The feeling of the the nations is that uh, this anointed one is just making our life much harder than it has to be. And if we could just get away from His rule, from His power, then everything in our life would be much better. We just need to to cast off His rule over us and then we'll come up with another system. We'll come up with another kingship whereby we can enjoy life and life will be much better. 
Uh, the picture in the Old Testament, as we read about David, who is uh, one of the anointed ones, uh, the main anointed one, the one who actually wrote this psalm, is that over and over again, there are people coming up against David. Uh, in the very beginning of his reign, the northern ten tribes of Israel didn't accept him as their king. They rejected him. Uh, and only Judah was really accepting him uh, and Benjamin at the time. So there's a resistance against the anointed one, that the anointed one is not good enough and that he is not helping us because of the way he acts and the way that he lives. He's not going to allow us to do what, what we want to do. And so they're rebelling against him. And again, you see that over and over. And even his own son rebels against him. Absalom rebels against him. But always, 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 God delivers His anointed. And this, this idea of the anointed one is that God loves him and wants him to rule and that He's going to make sure that He rules no matter what. This position is a supreme position of power over all the nations of the earth. And David shows that he, he has the right attitude toward this, uh, this position whenever he's anointed but not yet king, not yet the anointed one. You remember how David is, is struggling because Saul is this evil anointed one. He's not a good king, he's a bad king, but he's the anointed. And so David just suffers with him and he's given multiple opportunities to rise up against the Lord's anointed. But what does he always do? He says, I can't do that. I can't rise up against the Lord's anointed. People are encouraging him. It's your time, David. He's right there. Kill him. And he says, how could I do that? How could I rise up against the Lord's anointed? So this, this idea, this plot, is, is to go up against the Lord's anointed, but those who are righteous would never do that. They would never rebel against the authority of this king. But those who are wicked are plotting to do this. And what, what is God's reaction to this? Well, God's just terrified. I mean, just afraid, so scared. I mean, what, what are they going to do? I don't know. Yeah, right. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And that picture is that He is mocking them, that He is taunting them. God is, is, is laughing about their foolishness, of their plans. You're like, why, why would God mock them? That doesn't seem right. That kind of seems cruel for God to be mocking them, to be making fun of them for what they're doing. But they're doing the most foolish thing they could ever do. Here God is trying to set up His anointed one to rule over them, to guide them down the blessed path of Psalm 1, and they're rejecting Him, and they're accepting a cursed life, a wicked life instead. And God's just listening in to all of their plans against His anointed one and saying, you think that's going to work? <laughs> yeah, right. No way. God knows everything that they're planning. He knows everything that, that is intended and, and He has the complete power and authority to save His anointed ones. So He laughs at their plans. And then verse 5 says, Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. Wow. So, you kind of expect there to be more here. I, that's how I felt. Whenever I was reading this, then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. 
You know, I kind of expect more. I kind of expect, and He will send out flame of fire and hail and brimstone and, and there will be, you know, earth opening up and, and sword and all this kind of, uh, you know, curses against the people. But notice He just says, He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I've set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, what's interesting about that is, this is reminding us of the voice of God. Uh, If you remember back in Exodus chapter 20, when the people are before the mountain, they hear God speak to them. And God says the Ten Commandments to them, and they're listening, and they're covering their ears, and they're terrified, and the earth is quaking, and they're they're so upset that they say, Moses, tell God to stop. You, You speak to us. Don't let God speak to us anymore. They're terrified. That's God's friendly voice. <laughs> if, he, if, he, if He just wants to speak, that's how He's speaking. Can you imagine what this would sound like? God speaking in His fury. The voice of God is enough to terrify. If He wants to, He can use His voice to, to give complete and utter terror to the strongest of men to make them so afraid and so terrified. That's what God is able to do just by His voice. By His voice, He created the heavens and earth. By His voice, He can terrify. He can provide all the punishment that is needed. That, to me, is amazing. So how in the world uh, could anybody speak against God's anointed one? Verse 6 points out, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. The God of the universe has chosen this person to be it to be His King. And He has chosen this place to be His place. So how in the world could anybody rise up against God and His Anointed One? They're not just rising up against the King. Maybe that's the way they see it, that, oh, we're going to overthrow David and the Israelites are going to die. But God puts it this way, you're, you're rising up against the Lord and His Anointed. You're rising up against Me as you rise up against Him. And so, God makes, uh, we see in verse 7, it transitions to, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. We see Him kind of transition to the anointed ones start to speak, and He says, this is what God has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That picture of sonship is something we've, we've seen in our study of Hebrews recently. And it's the idea that goes back to the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says, I will be a father to him, speaking of Solomon, and he will be to me a son. The idea is God is father and the anointed one is the son. And that picture is that all that I have, all of my dominion, all of my rule will be yours. I will give it to you and you will rule in my stead. This is often what kings would do, that they would have their son rule while they're still living. They would give them the rule in order to help them along the way. So this is the picture that that God has given us that I consider Him to be a son to me. And you're rising up against my son. And that's not going to be tolerated by God. You can't rise up against God's son. Notice verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. There's that picture of God giving 
David giving his anointed one everything that he could possibly want. All the nations of the earth, all the possessions of the earth will be at his disposal. And then verse 9 he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Imagine someone taking an iron rod and, and going up against a clay pot. Is the clay pot going to damage the iron rod? No, it's not going to do anything to the iron rod. But the iron rod is going to smash the clay pot to pieces. And this is the way he pictures his anointed one. I will be with you, I am providing for you, and I will conquer your enemies and smash them to pieces. They will have no chance whatsoever. So if anybody is desiring to be against the anointed one, they may want to rethink that. They may want to rethink the idea that they should, they should go up against this king who God has chosen, who God is, is over and is, is setting up to be the ultimate king of all the earth. So in verses 10 through 12, he says, You kings of the earth need to be wise and be warned. You need to understand what it is that you're doing and you need to make a change to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. Then he says something really interesting. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. That picture of kiss the sun is saying you need to humbly bow in submission to kiss his feet. You need to pay homage to him. You have offended him. And he can quickly turn against you and smash you to pieces. So you need to rethink. And you need to, you need to come and submit to His reign, to His authority, and to doing His will. If you're too proud to bow down to this king, if you're too proud to submit and to follow after His rule, then you'll be destroyed. But if you'll bow down, and if you will submit and you will kiss the sun, you will find refuge and you will find rejoicing. That's the picture that he gives us in this psalm. That this is the king that God has set up over Israel and you must either submit to his authority and his rule or you will be destroyed. What a picture this is. Imagine David ruling over Israel and having this psalm as as an idea of how, how the nations need to fear him and treat him and think about him. Imagine being one of the subjects under this king and, and understanding this concept that, that David is the Lord's anointed and that this is the way God feels toward his anointed. Imagine singing about this kind of stuff. And you wonder why there's so many mighty men in Israel going out in battle because you're a tool of the anointed one. You're, you're a worker for the anointed one. You're a worker for God. And God is going to smash all of the enemies before you. You see what confidence, what encouragement these soldiers would have had as they go out in battle. This is an amazing song. Uh, as we as we read this, we can't help but be encouraged. But like I said before, we kind of struggle with this, right? I mean, we're not under a kingship. If we were under a kingship and we were reading and, and listening to all of this, we'd be like, yeah, let's follow that king. That sounds great. That's the guy that we want to serve. That's the guy we want to be subject to and submit to because the Lord is on His side and we have nothing to fear if we'll just submit to Him. Well... As we fast forward into the future, like I said before, we see that the Anointed One, the the Messiah, 
is Jesus. When Jesus arrives onto the scene, we see Him speaking of the kingdom of God and speaking of the kingdom of heaven with authority as though He knows what He's talking about. And the things that He says are absolutely true because He knows the Father... And He is the Son. You get the picture of Him being the Son of God. And and He shows that He has dominion and power over sicknesses. And dominion and power even over nature itself. We see Him being given authority by God that that God is just handing to Him because He's the Son. That, That is a clear picture of Him being this anointed one. The one who God has set up over everything on the earth. And we also see the nations rage against Him. Right? Everybody's conspiring against them. They're trying to overcome him, to overthrow his authority, to, to rebel against King Jesus as he comes onto the scene. But what's most amazing is they seem to win. They seem to triumph over the king. And this is why everyone's so confused whenever we get to the New Testament. What's going on? Why in the world is, is our king being put to death? Well, Jesus explains why He must die Himself in John 18. In John 18, verse 36, we we see that Jesus has been handed over to Pilate, uh, and then He's been handed over, uh, and then He's going to be handed over to Herod, and then He's going to be handed back over to Pilate. But at the first time, whenever He's handed over to Pilate, this is what He says to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Notice the idea of he's explaining his kingdom to a a ruler to try to help them understand there's a reason why I'm being defeated here. I would not be defeated if I didn't want to be defeated. (laughs) But because I have something else in mind, I'm allowing this to go on. My kingdom is, is not of this world. My kingdom is of another world. If my kingdom were of this world, those who were with me would be fighting and you would be the clay pot and I would, I would be the iron rod. Is the picture here. And you keep, you keep reading and you get to where he comes back to Pilate. And Pilate says to Jesus in chapter 19 of John verse 10, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Then Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. <laughs> It's a picture, again, for us that this kingdom, this earthly kingdom that Pilate is is a ruler in, has no real authority over the Lord and His anointed. But that the Lord is allowing this to go on. And allowing Jesus to suffer, allowing Jesus to be crucified. Jesus has power beyond our, our comprehension and He demonstrates it by, by changing all kinds of things in nature and sickness that, that no man has the power to do. But yet, He lets the nations do what they plan to do. He lets the nations rage against Him. Why? Because ultimately, He's going to use their foolishness to deliver the death blow to Satan. His ultimate enemy. 
This is what this is what the New Testament is all about. He wants to come down and he wants to die in order to save his people, and this is how he conquers those in the spiritual realm by humbly submitting to the rebellion and allowing himself to be crucified. That's how he finds victory. Because he's resurrected, because he's raised up, because he's given power over death. And he is raised up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God and given all rule and all authority. The picture of Psalm 2 is, is, is not so much a picture of a temporary king who will one day die and go away as it is of this eternal king who will live forever and ever at the right hand of God and who everyone needs to bow down and submit to. It's interesting that as we go through the New Testament, we see this being a major major psalm. This is a, a, something that Hebrews, the Hebrew writer points to, as, as Brent pointed out, and he actually points to it a few times. But also there's another area that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 4 in just a minute. But these, these New Testament Christians... They have this different mentality. As as they come onto the scene in the book of Acts, their thought process is totally different than than it was uh, even when Jesus was still alive. It's like Jesus rising and coming back to life and teaching them about the kingdom has now opened their eyes and made it clear to them that this is a kingdom unlike any earthly kingdom. And that Jesus is a king unlike any earthly king. And that the rule and the power of Jesus goes far beyond what we see or what we hear. And so the apostles in Acts chapter 4 are willing to submit to the nations raging against them. And they're they're taken off into prison and and they're told, you stop speaking the name of Jesus. And they say, uh, whether it's right to to listen to you or to God, (laughs) we'll let you decide. We're going to do what God wants us to do. We're going to submit to His rule, to His authority. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 25-31, we see that they're, they're allowed to be set free. And then they say, uh, they, they bring up this psalm. They bring up Psalm 2. And they say, "...who through the mouth of our father David your servant said to the Holy, through the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed." both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place... They, which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. What we see in the New Testament is these Christians are being persecuted much like Jesus was persecuted. The nations are still raging against them. And they see what Jesus saw. They understand what Jesus understood that God is, is still ruling. God is still in control. Even though these nations are raging, even though they, they seem to be winning, God's anointed one is sitting on the throne. 
And now they're unafraid of the nations and they're willing to be put to death to the nations. And they're saying, God, give us the boldness of Your Son who came and did this very thing. They trusted, they obeyed, and they found refuge in the Son of God as they lived on this earth. And this psalm, Psalm 2, helped them to do that. So what's the application for us? Well, today the nations are still raging. They're raging against God. They're raging against our King. And they're raging against us. Guess what? It's always been that way. And it will always be that way. So the picture of Psalm 2 is not just one specific point in time, and it's not just again in the New Testament, but it's a picture that that we understand throughout all of time. Now, we don't have kings. (laughs) Uh, We don't have kingdoms in that sense today. But the nations are still raging against the ultimate king and against God. What's so sad about all of this is that deep down inside, we all really want a Savior King. You see, it's interesting how the world has changed over time. Going from these monarchies where it's all in the family and it's descendants and descendants of kings to these democracies that are in republics and everything that's been set up over time, how we've transitioned away from the kingship model. Why? Because we want this great perfect king and we keep getting let down by these lousy kings who are taking advantage and abusing their power to do whatever it is their heart desires. We all want a Savior King. And even without a King over America, we're still looking for someone to come and to save us. We're we're expecting the next President to be the one, right? He's going to ride in like a white horse and He's going to save us and everything's going to be great just like it was before. But we don't get it. That's not how it works. And we keep wanting these kings and we keep ignoring the king that God has given to us. We keep ignoring the spiritual kingdom that has been set up that we we should be much more focused on than this physical realm and these physical things that are all around us. And we struggle to really want Jesus to be the king of our lives. We struggle with that. What do we say whenever we hear Jesus' commands? Think about this. Jesus says, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What do we say? Do you mean all of it? Are you sure you want me to give you all of it? Can I just set aside this little bit over here to do what I want to do? <laughs> this is what we do. We, 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 we like the idea of this Savior King who's going to fight our battles for us and He's going to give us complete victory over our enemies that are raging against us. But when our King gives us a decree, when He gives us a command, we struggle to obey it. Whenever He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, we say, well, do I really have to leave my home? And, and, and do I really need to schedule that in for more than once a week or maybe more than once a year? How much do I really need to do this? And how far do I really need to go? And, and He'll say, you must love them as I have loved you. Ooh. Well, they've been really mean to me. 
And you don't know the kind of pain and the kind of suffering that they've put me through. We might say that not realizing what we're saying because He knows. He knows everything that we're going through. But we still struggle to obey this command to love our enemy as God has loved us. But this is the decree of our King. This is the command of our King. And if we're under a kingship, we must obey. We must submit to the King. We cannot exalt ourselves over the King. The King is the absolute authority. What He says is for our good because He's not just a King. He's the greatest King that we could ever imagine. And what He commands us is for our good. What about this one? You must be holy as I am holy. Ah, about that temptation, you know? <laughs> Does that mean everything? Yeah, that means everything. I must set aside my body. I must set aside my mind to be reserved for the Lord that I must cut off all the sins in my life. We see how these are the decrees of the King. That these There's, there's plenty of decrees. There's plenty of commands that the King gives to us. And what is our attitude toward the command? That's really what this is all about. Are we willing to obey Jesus, our King? Are we willing to kiss the Son, to submit to His rule, to submit to His authority over our lives? Or are we like the nations raging against Him? Now, He's a refuge to those who turn to Him. And as we, as we transition from being in a kingdom that is of this world and that is full of all kinds of sin and evil, the transition's going to be rough and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to fail to perfectly keep the decrees of the king. He's perfect and he wants us to be perfect. But the, the question is, do we trust and obey the King? Do we serve Him with all of our heart? Do we desire to put His decrees before our own desires? Or are we looking to some other King? To some other uh, means of satisfaction? To some other ruler over our lives that will be better than King Jesus and provide us with more than what we're getting from Jesus? That's the question. It's a sad picture for those who refuse to kiss the Son. For those who refuse to submit to His authority. There's a lot of people that don't care to to submit to the authority of Jesus. But it's a very sad picture. He says He will speak to them in His fury and terrify them in His fury. He says He will crush them like an iron crashing against a clay pot. Don't let that be you. You know, submit to the King before it's too late. His wrath is quickly kindled, but He is patient also. It's interesting how it says that in verse 12 of Psalm 2, that His wrath is quickly kindled against those who were rebelling against Him. But at the same time, we have a picture of of a king who is patient, a king who is loving, who is tender. As Jesus walked on the earth, we see him showing uh, his willingness to serve. He is the servant king who wants to help and wants to guide us in our lives. There is no better king than Jesus. And if we're unwilling to submit to him, 
then we're asking for an awful king to rule our lives. And that may be ourselves, or that may be uh, some thing, or that may be some person. But it will only lead to our destruction in the end. Because we're rebelling. If you know that you're in the wrong position, that you are on the wrong side, and you understand that God is the one in control, and that God is the one who has the ultimate authority, and that you have been rebelling against His King, we want to encourage you to make a change, to come to submit, to do His will, and to glorify His name. If you need to come forward, please come as we stand and sing.